politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Ageless Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, friends. It's Michael Benner with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK for all of Southern California and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Appreciate you joining us for today's episode. In a way, we're going to carry on a theme that we began last week as we celebrated the life of the Zen monk Thich Nhat Hanh who died a couple of weeks ago and who is best known for his mindfulness teaching, his uh, mindful walking, and the book Peace is Every Step. And though perhaps lesser known as a peace activist, he would probably tell you that his most significant contributions to peace in the world is his anti-war activities beginning in the mid-1960s as a citizen of Vietnam. He was very concerned about their civil war and then later the entrance into that war of the superpowers with the United States and its allies invading on behalf of the South and Russia and to some extent China supporting the North Vietnamese with arms, if not troops. In other words, if we are to oppose war as a gross human injustice, it must begin with inner peace. And in the same way, if we seek a spiritual path based on being a peaceful person, then we're compelled to take direct action to oppose the gross injustice of war. Dr. Martin Luther King realized that as he expanded his scope, thanks to a large degree, to the intervention of Thich Nhat Hanh. From civil rights, housing, education, the right to vote, to opposing war. For not only is it a gross injustice and the ultimate violation of civil rights, but it also drains financial resources from human needs to making the rich richer. And those who represent us in Congress might say, well, it creates a lot of jobs. It's the worst way to create jobs. Military spending, so-called defense spending, are not job-intensive programs, but they are wealth-creating programs. And so, already wealthy men become even more wealthy, while the nation continues to squander its financial resources and other resources, environmental resources, human resources, on perpetual war. Now, currently, everyone is concerned about Russia bringing troops to its border with Ukraine. And it's remarkable to me just how myopic many people are, even my progressive friends, 
It's a concern that refugees, impoverished, unskilled immigrants at our southern border represent some sort of threat. So the previous president and certain Republican governors have sent troops to our border to protect us from an invasion, or as the previous president said, infestation, of these impoverished and unskilled refugees. But if Russia feels threatened by NATO, and it brings troops to its border with Ukraine, then this is outrageous. And of course, I am not a pro-Russian booster. I understand the violations of Russia under Putin, the invasion and occupation of Crimea, the fact that they murder journalists and poison their opponents and And anyone who dares to speak against the Kremlin is likely to have a horrible accident falling out the window of a tall building. These are not nice guys. When we invaded Iraq, certainly Saddam Hussein was not a nice guy. But there are ways of dealing with that. Without a military invasion, an occupation, a destruction of the society, Tens of thousands of lives lost, hundreds of thousands of people maimed and suffering. The suicide rate of American veterans is so obscene, it's a taboo to even discuss it. And yet, an intelligent person might wonder, what is so horrific about the good guys defending democracy and winning a war that they come home and take their own lives? Perhaps warfare is not as noble and heroic as it's been portrayed. And so-called progressive media is beating the war drums. There seems to be very little anti-war activity among the left. It exists. It just certainly hasn't reached the fevered pitch that it did in Vietnam or in America's invasion and occupation of Iraq. It seems we've all bought into the binary mentality that if superpowers disagree, that rather than being two forms of the same thing, they're opposite somehow. And therefore, one is a good guy and one is a bad guy. I'm often reminded of sports when I think about war. There are sports like horse racing, where there is a win, place, and a show can come in third and still it pays. Or the Olympics, there is gold, silver, and bronze. You, You can come in third in the world and not be a loser. You still take home a medal. But of course, my point is most sports are binary. One side wins and one side loses. Whether it's a singles event like tennis, for example, a team sport like football or baseball or golf, where there may be 15, 20 or more players, but only one winner. And that mentality is a dangerous mentality. When we look at 200 plus nations in the world, as different as we could possibly be in our customs, our traditions, our ethnicity, our culture, our religions, the food that we eat, 
But different only means opposite to the simple-minded, particularly the highly stressed, fearful individual who sees only black or white, all or nothing, good, bad, right, wrong, with nothing in the middle. No permutations, no combinations, no variations, no relative shades or matters of degree. Just everything or nothing. All right or all wrong. So where are the progressive voices? If your idea of progressive news is MSNBC, PBS, or NPR, I'm afraid you haven't thought this through carefully. And so today, following our program last week and on the inner peace and peace of mind, let's talk about direct action, a kind of sacred activism to oppose war. Not just some unpopular wars, but all war. War is itself an abomination. All war is a crime against humanity. And if you think of yourself because you live in the West as a Christian, and your idea of the Son of God tells you to love your enemy, but you dress up in camo and go out and shoot hot lead at people you've never even met for reasons that are vague and fuzzy at best, in most cases economic, you should reconsider your philosophy and your sense of loyalty honor, and even duty. I know it's difficult to think clearly when we are emotionally invested in the idea of war. After all, America was created in war, right? Let's uh, overlook the genocide of the Native American, the indigenous American. And let's for a moment set aside slavery, which was the conquering and bondage of an entire continent of people. Africa, the continent of everyone's birth. There's no one alive today who did not originally come from a tribe of 200,000 people in Western Africa. And just consider the American Revolution. A just war? Philosophers have been trying to justify war from the beginning of time. What makes war righteous? Self-defense? Well, it wasn't until the end of World War II that the United States Department of War renamed itself Department of Defense, a kind of Orwellian newspeak in shifting language. Is it a defense department if only 15% of the money spent by the Department of Defense goes to actually defending the continent and 85% to project your power overseas? Are you aware that the United States has combat troops armed, locked, loaded, and ready to rock in 150 nations around the world? that more than half of your tax dollar goes to support that militarism, though America is 6% of the world. And our military budget is larger 
than the military budget of the next 10 nations combined. Nearly $800 billion per year. Imagine a pile of money equal to $1 million, and then imagine 800,000 piles of a million dollars. And that's how much is spent of your tax dollars projecting American power overseas. But if Russia puts troops on its border and claims that it's concerned about NATO and an invasion, and they're really just defending themselves, we get all up in arms. (laughs) All my life I've heard, what makes you think we can trust the Russians? What makes me think I can trust anybody? The proverb, trust but verify, is a Russian proverb, (laughs) after all. So it's really the wrong question. It's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of recognizing that militarism, to a large extent, is a racket. That is not defending democracy as much as it is undermining democracy. As our bridges crumble and fall into the rivers they span, as school buildings fall apart and educational resources dwindle, with one in six American children suffering food insecurity. I didn't say African children. I didn't say Asian children. One in six American children. Most of them white, by the way, for you racists are suffering hunger in the United States, while over half of our budget goes to death and destruction. Something is very wrong. And if you listen to a program like this because you think of yourself as a spiritual person, because you think of yourself as listening to the dictates of your conscience, then as important as meditation and contemplation truly is, we must at some point open our eyes, stand up, move out into the world, and take direct action. Whether it's reading a book and studying to learn more, to be smarter and better informed. Whether it's joining a uh, social justice and anti-war organization and licking envelopes, and peeling stamps, and and organizing, and going to street protests, and participating in sit-ins, and teach-ins, boycotts, to educate your friends, to spread the word, to say this is wrong. That if you're really concerned about the Russians, remember that there are evil dictators in NATO. Hungary, that's not a democracy. Turkey, it's a brutal, despotic government. You don't hear this often, but in the last 20 or 22 years, since the end of the so-called Cold War, 10 former Warsaw Pact members and four former Yugoslav republics have been added to NATO, formerly aligned with the Soviet Union, in some cases part of the Soviet Union, I don't think it takes a whole lot of empathy to understand that the Russian Federation will feel threatened by NATO and not see it as a defense alliance. It's hypocritical. The United States has a history of overthrowing democracies. 
in Central and South America, for example, to install dictatorships. So it's, it's not about democracy and defending our democratic values whatsoever. It's militarism. It's profiteering. And it kills people. And in many cases, those who survive envy the dead. I'm going to introduce in a few minutes Norman Solomon. He's devoted his entire life to social justice and anti-war activism. He's the author of a number of books. He has a, a, a new ebook that he's giving away free that you can download. We'll also talk about the organization he co-founded called Roots Action. And I think you'll understand at the end of this show today that while peace begins within you, that has to be followed with action, with sacred activism. In fact, I'm going to continue this theme next week as I bring in the author of The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. My name is Michael Benner, and you're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK, and we'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. It's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK 90.7 FM. Thanks for joining us today. As I mentioned, we have a guest who is going to talk to us about militarism, about our war budget, about nuclear proliferation. There are a number of scenarios that we're facing around climate change and echo collapse. People are now worried about viruses. And uh, for some time, there's been an understandable concern about bacteria in the same way as we continue to use antibiotics indiscriminately. We're breeding bacteria that are resistant to these antibiotics. And People increasingly are dying from simple infections. So that may be the way we all go. There's a number of scenarios. One, however, that we seem to have forgotten about is nuclear war. Uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we were all up in arms. The Reagan administration was building first strike nuclear weapons to use against hardened targets. And uh, Star Wars, the... Uh, anti-ballistic missile system, and they were even telling us how we could dig a hole in the backyard and cover ourselves up with a door in case there was a nuclear exchange. They were teaching us to bury ourselves, and I remember George Bush talking about winning a nuclear war, and it seems we've forgotten about all of that. Maybe it's just this overwhelm. And maybe that's by design to flood the zone so that there's just so much chaos that it's almost more than we can handle. But uh, as good KPFK listeners, we want to stay informed. So let's revisit that whole topic of nuclear proliferation, the likelihood of nuclear war, the uh, outrageous level of military spending. I think a lot of Americans are just not aware of how much money is spent on war. And so I've got a guest who's de devoted, dedicated his entire life to helping us to be more aware of these dangers. And I've known Norman for many, many years, although I think it's been uh, probably three 
maybe four decades since I actually sat in studio with him and, and, and interviewed him. Norman Solomon is my guest and a lifelong anti-war activist. Norman, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK. Well, Michael, really glad to be with you and KPFK listeners. Norman, it seems to me you've spent your entire life as an activist, particularly in this field of militarism and, and war and nuclear proliferation. Do you remember deciding to devote your life to it, or did is it just something that you got, got into as a young man and never really changed your mind about it? It's amazing to me that, I mean, we thank military people for their service. I think we should thank the, anti, <laughs> the anti-war people for their service. So thank you for your service, Marvin. Oh, well, anti-war and social justice veterans, we might say, and there are so many, I'm sure, including uh, quite a few of our listeners right now. Well, I'm 70 years old, uh, so I was a teenager during the escalation of the Vietnam War, and it dawned on me around 1966 when I was 15, after first thinking, well, maybe this war is okay. After all, I was reading the Washington Post at the time and so forth. I realized that the war was just a senseless slaughter based on deception and outright lies. So really, since then, for me, one thing has led to another, one war after another, the squandered resources, the what we now call intersectionality between militarism and racism and environmental destruction. And here we are in what, 2022, and we're looking at a resurgence of all of that more visibly, you know, Michael, you were talking about, it, and I think it's quite true. There's been a real uh, fading away of awareness about the dangers of nuclear weapons and nuclear war with the nuclear arsenals being expanded in recent decades, as they have been for, for so long. And just in the last few weeks, I think a lot of people are realizing that with the confrontation over Ukraine between Russia and the United States, this is a cloud still very much hanging over our head. And I'd say one of the great ironies is that we've seen this tremendous growth of the climate movement led by young people. And that is terrific and essential. And yet there's been so far very little connection to the realities that scientists now know and have known for decades that a nuclear war would bring nuclear winter. And you can forget about agriculture if there's nuclear winter. So you can basically forget about human life, except maybe a couple percentage of people uh, off in remote areas, perhaps, who could survive. And that connection, I think, between climate and the threat of nuclear war is one that we need to solidify and make clear. People may be surprised to find out that there are plans that uh, we heard about in the last administration and they continue in this uh, new Biden administration to build a whole new generation of nuclear weapons. I don't know what that would be, nu nuclear war version three or four. Um, what do you know about that? What can you tell us about this $1 trillion plan to build new nukes? Yeah, it's a bipartisan push, and it keeps being inflated in cost. I think the latest number uh, is around $1.7 trillion with a T in the next couple of decades. And I think this layers into you know a broader and deeper problem. Uh, someone of 
of my age can remember in real time at that time the refusal at first of hardly any Democrats to oppose the war in Vietnam. We should say really the war on Vietnam. And it took so much organizing and activism and agitation to change that. Meanwhile, people are being killed in Vietnam as well as Laos and Cambodia. And so we had someone very brave like Senator Wayne Morris speaking up and denouncing uh, the, the war in Vietnam when he was a Democrat in the Senate with a Democrat in the White House, Lyndon Johnson. So here we are um, in early 2022, and where are the Wayne Morses? People in the LA area may think of their Democratic congressperson in the House. I can tell you, there are no Wayne Morses in the House or the Senate right now. As this escalation goes on to confront Russia around Ukraine, which is a from the United States government basically saying to Russia, do as we say, not as we do. We want to put all this weaponry on your borders. We would never tolerate it for a moment in Mexico or Canada. And where are the members of Congress? Well, they're prattling these platitudes about diplomacy, and they're supporting the president of their party in the White House. We've seen this real-life bad movie before. It's cowardice and its deference to partisan power. And we shouldn't put up with it. We as, as constituents, as human beings, should demand from our members of Congress, stop this warmongering, this brinkmanship, confront Biden and tell him to stop it. War, it seems to me, is the ultimate racket. Yeah. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a capitalism at its worst, where... Uh, let's find a way to destroy property and kill people, and then we'll also profit on the backside from rebuilding, and then we'll come in with weapons and destroy buildings and kill people again. So as to maintain the fevered pitch, and it's just this vicious cycle driven by enormous profits. Um, the the war in Iraq and Cheney's connection to Halliburton, where it was just handing over hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in no-bid contracts to a company that he'd worked for for 20 or 30 years. And, and I mean, it, there, there was no shame about it at all. None other than the Supreme Allied Commander in World War II, Dwight Eisenhower, said it was a racket. Um, how is it that they managed to keep us so insensitive and unaware, do you think? In a word, it's propaganda, and it comes from many different avenues, I think. People may have the conceit that we're above being influenced by propaganda, but of course that's not true. We can go back five and a half years ago, and of course you need an enemy, and they were running out of enemies. It's sort of hard to justify $1.7 trillion for new nuclear weapons in 25 years if you are dealing with people with you know, box cutters or uh, suicide belts. And so Russia is an old reliable enemy, you know, in search of enemies. There we are. And so five and a half years ago, right around when Hillary Clinton was losing the presidential election to Donald Trump, Actually, the day after she lost, there was a meeting uh, at the uh, national headquarters of the Clinton campaign. It's documented in a book called Shattered, co-authored by a reporter for the Hill newspaper. 
and they had pizza. Of course, they're very downbeat. And they decided, these were top people of the Clinton campaign, we're going to blame this loss to Donald Trump on Russia. And what ensued was a tremendous multifaceted campaign to do just that. So Hillary Clinton didn't lose because she was close to Wall Street. She didn't lose because she didn't campaign in the upper Midwest in the closing days of the campaign. She didn't lose because of voter suppression. No, she lost because of the Kremlin. And I'm sure there are many people listening to us who bought that hook, line, and sinker, who watched Rachel Maddow as her ratings escalated, as she beat a sort of a Joe McCarthyite drum, villainizing the Russians in the process every night. And people felt like, okay, that's the foreign enemy. Well, as you're alluding to, Michael, I think that's part of the racket. Uh, you can't convince people to funnel their money into weapons rather than healthcare, education, housing, and so forth, if you don't have an enemy. And so, yeah, the Russians uh, are ruled by somebody who we should be very critical of, violating some human rights. But let me remind people, in 1967, the Brezhnev regime in Russia was far worse than the Putin one today. And yet, Lyndon Johnson, who was no dove, went to Glasgow, New Jersey, and had a meeting with the head of the Russian government, Alexei Kosygin, and emphasized the importance of dialogue. We have a common interest, Lyndon Johnson said, because we're on one planet together. And yet we've had members of Congress, including some of the most purportedly progressive anti-war Democrats, just going to the rampart, saying we must denounce Russia and confront them and send these weapons. There was criticism of even the idea that Putin should have a meeting with Trump when Trump was president. This is a sort of a, a frenzy that I like to think in recent days a lot of people are pulling out of because they realize no matter what differences we might have within our own country or planetarily, if we keep on this course, we will be headed to nuclear war. I seem to remember in the 80s, Reagan and Gorbachev did some disarmament talks. And um, at that time, it was like Reagan inadvertently said the quiet part out loud, admitting we could have done away with all these nukes. And he sort of chuckled and looked askance as if, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's just too profitable to maintain this, well, I think of Mad Magazine, spy versus spy, you know, like, are we opposites or are we two versions of the same thing, this superpower game? A lot of projection where they're so evil. Well, anybody who studies U.S. foreign policy ought to know that the U.S. is second to none, and that's putting it mildly to manipulating, to using militarism to get its way. Uh, I heard the former uh, ambassador uh, to the U.S., uh, former ambassador from the U.S. to Russia, um, Michael McFall, on the BBC a couple of days ago, uh, saying that the threat of an invasion of Ukraine is just intolerable because we can't have one country going around invading another. Now, this, this is a guy who served the Obama administration, which continued a war for eight years in Iraq that was only happening because the U.S. has invaded Iraq. And yet 
you know, this is sort of the double speak, double think thing. Now we're being lectured that even to have troops on their own border and perhaps planning to invade a neighboring country, that that's like they're the evil ones or the saintly ones. And, you know, it's so far fetched uh, that on its face, it is saying, do as we say, not as we do. And if you've ever been to another country and you talk to people, it's quite likely you uh, realized, uh, if not before being aware, that people in other countries don't just assume that the United States is saintly and they should pretend they don't see our hypocrisy and be happy about it. Well, I think what complicates this for people is, first of all, the more stressed and anxious we become as a society, the more likely we are to think in simple binary terms, as if all differences are opposites. And further, there's no shortage of bad actors. You talk about Iraq. Well, Saddam Hussein, though uh, you know he came to power largely through support of America's intelligence agencies, nevertheless was a bad guy. And uh, his sons were likewise just, just horrible, violent, uh, brutal people, but they had nothing to do with 9-11. If that's why we went to war, we would have attacked Saudi Arabia, where most of the hijackers came from. Instead, it was Iraq. Some say ultimately because of oil. Others say it was just uh, an attempt for America to demonstrate its military might. What's your take on the real reason that Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld wanted to go into Iraq. Well, it, it was much of both that you refer to. Years later, people uh, like Chuck Hagel, who later became uh, Defense Secretary, former uh, at the time when he said this, uh, Senator, he said, let's face it, it was about oil. This was a few years after the invasion. And that's certainly a, a huge factor. If the export crop had been cucumbers instead of oil, I don't think there would have been an invasion. The involvement, we know that the New York Times, especially uh, Judith Miller, uh, was a reporter who just spread lies routinely on the front page of the New York Times, fed by Dick Cheney and so forth. Uh, Michael Gordon, uh, now I believe at the uh, another outlet, uh, co-authored those. I was doing some research recently. The New Yorker magazine had a tremendous role in that propaganda, and the same editor who was in place then, the top editor at the New Yorker magazine, is still there, uh, David Remnick. They published article after article saying that Saddam Hussein was connected to Al-Qaeda and 9-11. Clearly fabrication at the time, no sources except, in one case, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, anonymous sources. And this is a magazine that, again, is beating the drum against Russia over Ukraine. So this is sort of a uh, a liberal uh, militarism that unfortunately uh, has continued. And I think one of the grand ironies of all of this, appreciated by China and Russia more than America perhaps, is that the new battlefield is the internet, cyberspace, so to speak. And we're being attacked and undermined. And democracy is at risk, not because of battleships and fighter jets, or even nuclear weapons, but malware and uh, phishing scams. And uh, it's almost as if here we're building battleships as if it's still 
the 1930s, 1940s or something, and watching the front door and in through the back door comes a cyber war. Uh, I got to take a break. Let's talk about that when we come back on the other side, though, the changing battlefield for the 21st century. My guest is Norman Solomon, and we're talking about nuclear proliferation, militarism, imperialism, the use of war and violence to get what we want. And uh, we'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK in Los Angeles. KPFK on your radio, 90.7 FM for all of Southern California and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. My guest today, Norman Solomon, is with us talking about militarism and nuclear war. So President Biden just signed a military budget amounting to $768 billion. I can remember in the Reagan era when it hit $500 billion, and we thought that was insane. So now we're close to $800 billion. Where does that money go? Any idea what percentage of that is actually about defending the United States and what percentage is about projecting our power in foreign places? Well, of course, the formal name is the Defense Department, but I don't think we should use a lowercase d to say it's a defense budget because it's not. A vast uh, amount of this has nothing to do with defense. I mean, you could easily cut Pentagon budget in a half and it wouldn't harm legitimate U.S. defense whatsoever. This is uh, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the madness of militarism, and it has its own momentum and creates itself like a meme on and on. And we're dealing with that now. Uh, more than half, uh, last figure I saw, 55% of the federal discretionary budget is going to the military. And meanwhile, I don't need to tell people if they live in Southern California or anywhere else in this country, our basic needs for people for housing, for education, uh, for medical care, for elder care, for the very young. We've got the, the tin cup out begging for more money while the military is getting, as you mentioned, Michael, this new budget. It's even more than Biden asked for. It was going to be 1.6% more than the already bloated Trump budget. And then the the smart smart members of Congress said, oh, that's not enough. We're going to have to go up a couple more percent. And this is the mentality that we're dealing with. Well, if you're a congressperson, you may be looking at defense industries in your part of the state or your part of the nation and the money that goes there, and they justify that as jobs. But jobs doing what? You know, working toward the end of the world. Again, as you pointed out, if we just used 5% of the nukes we have, if 95% stayed in their silos, that would be enough to trigger a nuclear winter. And uh, that's the end of the story right there. So it's absolutely insane. Years ago, again, back in the mid to late 80s, I did the Tom Snyder show on uh, what he was. Uh, on Channel 7 in Los Angeles. And he had heard me on the radio uh, talking about 
Reagan's uh, bombing of Libya at the time. And we started talking about nuclear war, and I was explaining about these broken arrow incidents where nuclear weapons were dropped out of airplanes, like in North Carolina or something, and never recovered, and what a, what a danger it was to have these sack bombers flying over with nukes 24-7, and how you know alerts had been triggered by the rising moon and, and flocks of geese, all of which are true stories that I had reported. And uh, he got very upset with me, and we took some calls, and it was a young girl that called and said she was frightened, and I said that it was understandable that she'd be frightened. And by the end of the interview, I was the bad guy for frightening people about nuclear war. When I'm the anti-war activist, I didn't build those nukes. And so I guess I want to ask you about psychic numbing. And we've seen this movie that just came out, Don't Look Up. And that's what that's about, is psychic numbing, that normally compassionate people if one or two or a small group of people suffer, the vast majority of people are concerned. But when an entire species is about to be annihilated, human beings en masse, 800,000 people dead of COVID, and people just shrug and say, well, they got the flu. And so it is with nuclear war. This psychic numbing concerns me. And, and I wonder how that strikes you. The psychiatrist, Robert J. Lifton, uh, used that term, psychic numbing, and I think it's very appropriate. There's a horrible quote um, attributed, I believe, to Stalin, but whoever said it, uh, the death of one person is a tragedy, the death of a million people is a statistic, and we need to guard against that in ourselves as, as human beings to abstract. And I think the war makers and the war industry in it is such as we've been talking about an extremely lucrative uh, industry for uh, the few, the investors, the already big, wealthy uh, entrepreneurs of uh, being merchants of death. But for most people, uh, this is uh, depleting our resources and so forth. And yet we're encouraged so many ways, so many ways to simply blur it out. Uh, a lot of it is media coverage, where these are abstractions, they're rendered as abstractions, and they are uh, overlaid, papered over with the standard cookie cutter words like George Orwell talked about. It's like pasting little snippets of paper together that have cliches written on them. And all you got to do now is listen to members of Congress about the Ukraine crisis. They're just spouting these cliches. And what is at stake it's the invisibility not only of people who've died in U.S. and other wars, but also the invisibility of the potential loss, which we can't even grasp in terms of what nuclear war would do. And I really do want to encourage people to no longer give our representatives in Congress the benefits of the doubt and then the benefits of the benefits of the doubt. They are on the war train right now. Maybe they will get off. But if you have been told, as I have been, uh, what a great liberal Adam Schiff is, you're being scammed. If you're being told what a great congressperson or acceptable person Brad Sherman is, you're being scammed. And likewise, pretty much uh, almost all 
almost all of the other representatives from our state of California, because they are on this war train right now, even though they mouth the platitudes about diplomacy. What we need is members of Congress who will speak up and say very clearly that President Biden is engaging in nuclear brinkmanship, and that is in a human way, absolutely unacceptable. Well, he's of the wrong generation for the 21st century. He's living in a World War II mentality. Again, I mentioned earlier, we're still building battleships. There is no mission for a battleship in the 21st century. It's like uh, building horse and carriages and, and investing in buggy whips and typewriters. It's, it's just makes no sense at all, except that it's profitable. And, and uh, solar panels, you know, solar panels not only could be profitable in some ways, but they also would create many more jobs per dollar. And, you know, ever since the economist Seymour Melman wrote books about this several decades ago, we've known that military spending is one of the worst ways to create jobs dollar for dollar. But it's one of the best ways, perhaps the best way to profiteer these cost plus contracts, these enormous contracts. Northrop Grumman just got $13 billion to design and begin to implement a new generation of ICBMs that make the world less safe to begin with. And they have a projected cost of a quarter of a trillion dollars. That's, you know, we can't imagine what kind of profits uh, that involves for certain already wealthy people, just as we can't imagine what the nuclear war that those weapons make more likely would really be like on this planet. We get in this uh, emotional investment where people's sons and fathers and uncles, and in many cases, their, their daughters and their wives and their mothers and their aunts are military veterans, and they've devoted, sacrificed uh, to what they thought was a practice of defending the nation and the values of democracy that we all hold dear. And so anti-war activists are often uh, challenged with shouts of, uh, you know, we, we, we don't support the troops and we don't love the country. And I think we need to talk a little bit here, Norman, about the fact that the American soldier and uh, all branches, I don't just mean soldiers, but military personnel are victims of this as well. Look how badly we treat the veterans. Inadequate health care, um, really no effective treatment for what today is called post-traumatic stress syndrome. It used to be called battle fatigue in World War One and World War II, shell shock. Now it's PTSD. The inordinate level, the unbelievably high level of suicide among our veterans, if we face it, if we confront it, if we look at it carefully and wonder at it, what does that say about what war does to people who survive it? Well, it's exploitation. I mean, it's, it's part of the same set of priorities that see human life as weighed down on the list. I was looking at a 10-year retrospective on the website of the Center for American Progress, which, of course, is a think tank uh, very closely aligned with the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. And 10 years into the Iraq War, uh, 
that site said point blank that all of that death in Iraq, uh, among Iraqis and uh, American soldiers, it, it would have been worth it if it had helped the U.S. geopolitical positioning in the Middle East. The problem with the war is they decided it was a bad investment and it was not helping the U.S. geopolitically in that region. So that is uh, the approach, the mindset that we're dealing with. And ultimately, every human being is potentially expendable because rhetoric aside, people aren't the reality. Profits and power are. Well, it's so Orwellian. I mean, at the heart of all of this is the dehumanization of human beings. If we divide the world up like it's a sporting contest. I mean, when you're in high school, you're loyal to your high school, and, and the city just down the road five miles is the enemy, right? And then you go to college, and boy, you're loyal to your college, and football, basketball, the college 100 miles away is the enemy. But we know that's a game, high school, college. But when it comes to nationalism, it doesn't seem like a game, and yet it's the same kind of full loyalty. I, I don't know exactly what word I'm looking for here. Misplaced nationalism that says, we must be the good guys because we're us. And I live here, and I know we're not the bad guys. So if somebody's different, their system is different, their language is different, their religion is different, their customs are different. They even dance funny, and I don't like their food. If they're different, and the world is full of bad guys, they must be the bad guys. So we get over our high school loyalty and our college loyalty, but we maintain that nationalism to our detriment. And again, we're back to that psychic numbing and the whole psychological framing of, of war and its perpetual nature, as long as there is someone out there who we perceive as the other. The nationalism is something that's so pervasive and insidious that I think all of us need to check ourselves uh, if we're falling into it. And somehow that the USA is uh, on a higher moral ground, and therefore it's okay for our troops, our threats, our deployments to happen Whereas it would be intolerable if the shoe were on the other foot, you know, and if we can't have, so to speak, diplomatic empathy and understand, even if we don't agree, then we're just getting on a high horse, which you could say is one of the horses of the apocalypse. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening are in some degree of fear for good reason. And of course, action is a good antidote to despair. And so I'd love to invite people to join in with an organization that Jeff Cohen and I founded about 10 years ago. And we had zero supporters online. Now we have 1.2 million in the United States. We're an activist group. We're a progressive group. We challenge corporate power and militarism and racism and xenophobia. And you're all invited. It takes you about 30 seconds to sign up. And then you get action alerts so we can do some joint activity and action as people. And that's very easy to do if you're not already uh, online to get rootsaction.org action bulletins. I want to invite you to do that. It's easy to do. You just go to rootsaction.org. That's R-O-O-T-S, action.org. And I know when I get uh, in despair, 
the best response is to do something about it. You also have a, a an ebook that you're giving away free. Uh, what's the title? Made Love Got War. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I've been very excited that the book that came out in hardcover, uh, it's the good and bad news, but ultimately now good. The publisher folded and the rights reverted to me. So no publisher is going to give away a book, but I get to give away my own book, which is great. And so it's just been published in the last couple of weeks as an ebook for the first time. And anybody in about 30 seconds can download it and read it at your leisure. It has a terrific forward by Daniel Ellsberg, who reflects not only on his work releasing the Pentagon Papers, but this entire reality of the warfare state and nuclear weapons. It's a very moving essay by Daniel Ellsberg, and it's the start of the book. So it is, as you mentioned, Michael, titled Made Love Got War, and anybody can download it by just going on the web to madelovegotwar.org. Well, I saw a... Uh picture of the cover of the book and it's a picture i'm familiar with that i've always loved of flower children hippies putting flowers in the barrels of uh weapons held by a presumed national guardsman uh looked like it might have been kent state but it could have been any one of a number of uh <laughs> 60s conflicts what well, do you know the backstory of that picture yeah you're right it could have been taken many places it turns out as we looked into the background of the photo it was taken on that day in October 1967 when thousands of anti-war demonstrators converged on the Pentagon and with perhaps over-optimism, part of the pitch for showing up was that we were going to collectively levitate the Pentagon. That didn't quite work, but it was a turning point for the anti-war movement gaining strength. And that photo was taken, it turned out, as you say, a very powerful picture taken by a photographer on the staff of a newspaper that existed at the time, the Washington Evening Star. And the photographer knew it was a great picture, took it back to the office. Of course, then you had to take it back and put it in the developing room, showed it to the editor, and the editors refused to publish it. And so only later did that photo emerge. Well, it reminded me of the uh, tank man in Tiananmen Square. Mm. Uh, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Those are powerful images that directly contradict the idea that bigger is better and more powerful always wins the day. And it's really not true. Um, but the struggle is perpetual because corruption is so tempting and so widespread. I think one of the challenges we all face in this current era in the wake of the last administration especially is that corruption is so widespread so ubiquitous in our society even churches are corrupt and sporting events are corrupt not to mention the media and large corporations large unions and of course government at all levels so much corruption that it's just tempting i think for people to say well why not you know why should i be virtuous or ethical why should i consider morality or listen to my conscience when everybody up and down my block is on the take they're lying and cheating and stealing and i might as well get my piece of the action and so there's a kind of a critical mass i think we're past a tipping point on that and yet 
to consider that it's an act of civil disobedience just to refuse to be corrupt, <laughs> you know, just to, to do your best to live a virtuous life is a, a subversive and radical action. Well, I think being truthful about the military-industrial complex is a radical act in a good sense as the word comes from going to the roots, and that's going to be essential. Norman, uh, did we tell people how to get a hold of your ebook? I know we have rootsaction.org to sign up for uh, action alerts. And uh, tell us again, how do we get the ebook Made Love, Got War? Yeah, I'd love for people to read it and perhaps let me know what you think. You can go to madelovegotwar.org. Norman Solomon, my guest today. Norman, thank you so much. And uh, let's not wait another 25 or 30 years to <laughs> repeat this interview. And as I said before, thanks for your service. Oh, I, I, I look forward to talking with you again, Michael. And, and thanks for all you've been doing on the airwaves for, for decades. We're here every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock on KPFK. We also podcast for the world, and you can find the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on any and every podcatcher and player app. We also stream on the homepage, theagelesswisdom.com. You'll find more about me at michaelbenner.com. Also, we're just beginning our fun drive, the first of 2022. And I hope you can make a pledge, a donation, or contribution directly by going to kpfk.org. Check out Sustainer's Circle, set it and forget it, make a small contribution every month, or dig deep and make a big annual contribution. In any event, support what supports you. Free speech, commercial-free radio for all of Southern California and the world through kpfk.org. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.